I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Most wine bottles, especially in the U.S., contain the same amount of wine, 750 milliliters, or three-fourths of a liter. Of course, we'll have some alternate formats. We've got large formats and splits, but having fairly universal wine increments in the market is something that came to be in the 20th century. Where did the 750 milliliter bottle come from, and how has it impacted how we think about wine? The buying and selling of wine from producers to consumers in glass bottles really became commonplace in the early 1900s. The norm before that was to sell wine from wineries in barrels, which would be tapped in the home. At home, glass vessels would be used to transfer the wine from the barrel to the tabletop, similar to a decanter. A size approximate to 750 milliliters was an easily producible size by a glass blower without having to get too technical in the glass blowing process. It was also a size that was easy for most people to carry around. The World Wars also had an impact on determining how much wine should be in a daily portion. War rations were practical. Ration amounts would find themselves somewhere on a spectrum, with the minimum required on one end and the maximum that could be transported in battle on the other end. In World War I, for instance, French soldiers had one-liter canteens. But those fighting in North Africa had two-liter canteens because the access to the water supply was more difficult. When moving rations in Europe became harder during World War I, everyone got two-liter canteens. In practice, most French soldiers carried two canteens, one for water mixed with wine and the other for coffee sometimes mixed with spirit. The alcohol acted as a preservative and also as liquid courage in horrifying battle situations. American World War I canteens held one quart, a little less than a liter, and some Americans preferred to carry the two-liter French canteens so they could transport more liquid in one container. A wine ration was one way to move water without spoiling it during the wars. During World War I, French wine rations changed from one liter to half a liter and evened out at around three-quarters of a liter, which is 750 milliliters. So the idea of a daily portion of wine for a person 
had a subconscious fixing at somewhere between 500 milliliters and one liter by the end of World War I. Our idea of this daily quantity in part came out of the practicalities of getting nourishment to soldiers. But the fixing of the measure at 750 milliliters in the U.S. came much later out of the practicalities of a different nature. In the 1970s, the U.S. almost joined the metric system, and the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau were up at the front. They took the first steps and converted their regulations from gallons, quarts, and pints to the metric system. They chose units of measure that corresponded closely with the previous standards, one of which was the fifth, standing for a fifth of a gallon. 750 milliliters was very close to a fifth, and the Bureau decided that this regulation would make the transition to the metric system easier on the American people. This fixing of 750 milliliters happened fairly recently, in 1980. In the U.S., having a universal incremental format for wine has greatly impacted the wine marketplace. Pricing wines in these increments have done one vastly incredible thing. It has created a constant on which we may more easily measure the market value of the liquid inside. Imagine someone buying and selling wine when all of the bottle sizes are different. To determine the value of, say, a glass pour, you'd first have to determine how many milliliters were in the bottle, how much each milliliter was worth, and how many milliliters were in your glass pour, and then you could add your markup in order to properly price the wine. In a very general sense, we've become accustomed to placing a value for this amount in our minds. This has allowed us to judge wines against one another by comparing their marketplace values. Imagine back in the barrel days, knowing that barrel A is a 250-liter barrel and costs $400, and barrel B is 275 liters and costs $550, and barrel C is a 600-liter barrel and it costs $760. It means that to compare the values of the liquid inside, you'd have to do some math. But these same three wines in 750-milliliter bottles can be compared much more quickly. Barrel A is $1.2 per 750-mil, Barrel B is $1.5 per 750 ml, and barrel C is 95 cents per 750 ml. You can clearly tell which bottles are worth more in the marketplace when you're dealing with the same increment of measure. And when you place this in the context of how the wines taste, you can very quickly tell which wines are bargains and which wines are overpriced because you have a clear price baseline between different products from different places. Fixing a general size made it easier for consumers and sellers of wine to value and compare the prices of liquid. But the fixing of the sizes might never have come about without, you guessed it, taxes. The Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau has an obligation to collect taxes on alcohol, and fixed liquid values make it much easier to determine the tax on the bottles. So in short, why do we have the 750 milliliter wine bottle standard in the U.S.? Taxes. It always comes back to taxes. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries 
on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an S dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Jean-Baptiste Lacayon of Champagne Louis Roterer on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? Very good, Levy. Very happy to be with you. Very nice to see you. Mm-hmm. So you were born somewhat near the Champagne area. Yeah, close to Champagne uh, in uh, Lorraine, which is uh, not far. You know, it's in between Strasbourg, uh, Alsace, and Champagne, uh, because my f- my mother family were from there. So uh, say she wanted to to give birth on her homeland. So we, I was born there, but I never lived there. In fact, I lived in Champagne right away because my parents were living in Champagne. What were your parents like? My parents were really, really um, open people, loving, loving, and they're still, because they're still alive. They love nature, they love uh, going in the forest and uh, doing uh, any kind of uh, country promenade or country walks and things like that. And I think it's something important because uh, by by learning that as soon as you're from your birth or from when you're young, you really are very uh, sensitive. You know? I think it's kind of more sensitivity to nature, observation, more yeah, more humility at the end because uh, you have an aesthetical vision of things. And even the smell, the smell of uh, autumn in the in the forest, the smell of uh, the wheat uh, when it's ripe, you know, or uh, of corn or grapes. It's, it, it brings something, you know, it's, uh, it brings your memory in, at least. Mm-hmm. And this is all about memory, what we are doing. What was the career of your father? You... Uh, my father was, uh, I have two generations before me of beer maker. So I always say that uh, I have bubbles in my blood, but it's not, it's not champagne, it's beer. And uh, so the beer family company was sold to Stella Artois, you know, the big Belgium company. And my father started to do something else and he worked in a, as a PR person for medicine, you know, for... Uh, like a pharmaceutical? Yeah, pharmacy and a big German company. Uh, and he done that all his life. Yeah. That must have been a big change. Yeah. It's a big change from beer to, to medicine. But in the end, maybe beer is medicine. What were your interests as a kid? I mean, what were you... I was really a, a person of the land, you know. I was my, we, we had a, a country house with my parents and I was always... Uh, all the weekends I was... Uh, helping the farmers next door, you know, I was very good friend with them. So I was doing everything in, in the farm. So that was my weekend, my weekend uh, love. So, and I really, I really love that. I think it's, it comes to one more time. It comes to nature and what you like, uh, what you smell, what, what you see and working with uh, cows and different uh, animals as well. Just being a part of a wall that is bigger than you. Yeah. That's the story of it- life. 
And when did you decide wine was going to be a part of that story? Ah, that's uh, back in 81. In fact, it was, I remember very well, I was, it's a very French story, in fact, because uh, I was 14 years old and we, we went to visit a, a very famous French writer called Henri Vincenot from Burgundy. He died now, but he, he wrote a, a few beautiful books on Burgundy tradition, Burgundy people, Burgundy uh, soul. And, uh, one of them is La Bille Abode, but there is a most beautiful one, which is called Le Pape des Escargots, published back in 73, 74. And we went to visit as a school, a school study. We were studying this book and we went with all the class. It was about snails, Pope of Snails. Yeah, yeah, Pope of Snails, yeah. And we went to see, uh, to visit the, him, to talk about uh, his, his books. And uh, we were, it's in Burgundy. It was in Burgundy. And the man was really, really full of story about, uh, about where, 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 what was Burgundy, what was, uh, you know, it's a very Burgundian, I think most, the most famous Burgundian writer. And among, in this visit, we went to Dujac. And Jack says, prepare the tasting. So it's very French because we were 14. And we drank a lot of wine. <laughs> so I loved it, not to be drunk, but I loved the wines. And then I think it's kind of my epiphany. You know, at, at, this, uh, at this day, uh, I came back and I said, I will make wine. Because the story of the people, the story of the place, the story of the terroir, in fact, the wine itself, it's something it speaks to me. It speaks to me. And that, so from 14 onwards, I say I will make wine one day. I didn't say I will make champagne or I will make Burgundy or Bordeaux or any, anything like that, but I will live that wine life. You know, that will be my wine life. And by 89, you were working for Rotor. Yes, yes. So I did my study. I, I did my PhD or, you know, the, all the, stories, the University of Montpellier. You, know, I you went to Montpellier. Yeah. That's was, unusual, right? Yeah, yeah. But that's the best school in university in France where you first study viticulture and then you do winemaking. And I think this is the right way to do it. Too many people go and learn winemaking. Learning winemaking is like uh, eating a plate without sugar or without uh, salt, you know. I think you, you really need to understand what is in the grapes themselves, what makes the grapes so unique. So I studied in Montpellier, which, which is a place where you could do that. And I graduated with honors of this. And then straight away I went to Rodreur uh, in 89. Uh, in 89, and I flew to California. Because that was the time of the second harvest for Rodreur in California, in Anderson Valley. So the Michel Salg was the winemaker at the time in California, and he needed some help to go from uh, a few bottles to a few hundred thousand bottles. So I had to, I had, I was a second in charge with him in Anderson Valley, and I spent a year. I should have spent three or four years. That was a plan, but I spent in in the end, I spent just one year, because at the same time. Rodreur started a joint venture in Tasmania, so in Australia. The, the game being to produce the first sparkling wine of Tasmania. We needed someone on the spot. So, so Jean-Claude Rousseau, the owner of Rodreur, said, would you go to Tasmania with your family for a while? And I've been there for three and a half years. You know, I've been, I worked there uh, and uh, I launched the first Tasmanian sparkling wine called Jens. Now it's not anymore in the Rodor family, but I worked four years there. What was that experience like? Great, super experience. I think I was, when I, when I touched base in uh, Tasmania, I had to go to see the French consul in Melbourne, you know, to identify myself. And uh, the, there was a very nice old man, and he told me, listen, uh, 
you will be the only French in Tasmania. So uh, I, I'm on the other side of the of the of the Bass Strait, you know, the, uh, the sea. But uh, so I'm your contact, but you will be alone. So I was alone on the other side, and uh, so the only French in Tasmania. That that was a bit strange. That was the end of the world, you know, for us at the time. Today, I think there is many, many more people, uh, French winemakers. I think, I think it has developed, grown, and things like that. So it was kind of a pioneer time. And um, Do they treat you nice. I mean, yeah. What were the working habits like? I think the most important, uh, the, the most interesting thing was the number of grapes I was growing. Uh, I was doing Sauvignon Blanc, Merlot, Riesling, Cabernet Sauvignon. Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Traminer, uh, all kind of, every single grape on earth was, was growing in the estate. So for a young winemaker wanting to learn his job, and I had no, I had a cellar, a few, two or three cellar hands, but not a big group. So I had to do everything myself with a team. So very hands-on, hands-on work and uh, all kind of wines. The harvest was lasting four months from the first Pinot for sparkling wine to the cab that we were picking four months after. So four months of harvest. That was kind of a, I don't know if I would be able to do it now uh, for 30 years later, but that was great experience. A good comparative for you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, doing every single job every in the vineyards, pruning, tying, grafting, driving tractors, hunting uh, wallabies, shooting wallabies at night because they were... <laughs> eating the grapes, and it was a load. Were you a good shot? Or? Yeah. I was not good. <laughs> I was not good. But uh, it was a load. Huh? It was not uh, uh, forbidden because they were, they, they, we had some permit to do it. And uh, making wines, rolling the barrels, racking, pumping, bottling. All this, I've done it, and I think it's really built me in, into a... I know every single job. So. Uh, and I think it really helps me when I came back to Champagne after... Where every the workers the cellar the cellar workers you know an old champagne company you know where seeing uh, seeing a young winemaker you know it, it can be a challenge but all my team saw immediately that I was I knew how to do every every single work in the cellar so I think it, it gives you respect it gives you respect and uh, it's not an analogist with who knows but doesn't knows the theory but doesn't know how to do it it was someone who knew. The practical of winemaking, and I think it, it gave me immediately some respect from the team. And my team, uh, I think it's it's more than respect. In fact, I think they followed me. They followed me straight away. Well, it's probably a large team, right? Oh yeah, yeah. When you have a, the large team, is complicated. I have fifty vignerons, fifty cellar people, so I have one hundred percent of permanent. At harvest time, I have six hundred pickers. During the season, I have one hundred fifty to two hundred persons. So that's a lot of people. I believe very much in people. And I think if you want to go to the next step in quality in winemaking, you need to empower people. So you need to give them responsibility. You need to, of course, you have a vision of what should be done in this vineyard, or in the cellar, or in the wine. But you also need to empower them so that they are part of the story. They make it. If you succeed in that, I really think that you find a window of never-ending possibility of creation because every single worker has creativity in his hands and that makes a big difference so i think uh, that's a people's story um, wine is a man's story it's of course a terroir story the grapes the place uh, the history the culture the people 
all of that is important. But but man is the key to quality and to innovation, creation. And it, it's a never-ending process. What was your mandate when you got back to France? What did your boss tell you? So when I got back to France, uh, it was uh, 94. That was a time where we we had bought our first Bordeaux properties in Saint-Estèphe, Chateau au Beau Séjour. And in 95, we bought Chateau de Pez. Two small estates in Saint-Estèphe, and we didn't have the, the structure to hire uh, a manager. So I was managing that from Champagne, spending at a minimum of one week a month in, in Saint-Estèphe to lead the team in, in Bordeaux. So as always, when you buy an, uh, an estate, you have to re- consider everything, you have to study all the soils, you have to understand the place, uh, you have to uh, understand the wine, you have to visit everybody around because uh, to see how they do, what they test like, test many, 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 many wines, retest many, many, many wines to see where you stand and where you have to, to work. And so it took me quite a lot of time and I, I did that from... 94 to 97, 98. And in, in 97, I hired a winemaker from Carbonieu. He came from Carbonieu to be the man at the spot because I didn't have, I had too much work in Champagne. So I hired a very good winemaker from Carbonieu and we worked together during 15 years. But that's an interesting run of vintages that you had by yourself there. 95, 96, 97, those mm. are all pretty different. Yeah. In Bordeaux. In Bordeaux, yes, yes. It's true, uh, 95, very unusual vintage with so, so small berries, you know, so dark, dark skin, very concentrated, very uh, austere, austere tannins. So a monster, monster 95. And then 96, I didn't see, I didn't see really 96 as it is, uh, because in 95, that's the time I decided to stop using herbicides. And I replowed tilling all the vineyards, and it was not tilled for 15 years. So the roots were a little bit on the top of the soil. And I think I really, uh, I worked all the soil, tilled all the soils in, uh, in 96. And I, I think the vines at harvest were a little bit depressed. I think I, you know, when you reintroduce tilling, you get so many roots by you, with your machine that, um, that the vines really stress a little bit. And I think I missed this vintage in Saint-Estèphe. Uh, should have done better. Should have done better. Oh. And 97, it's another story, 97. What made you do that decision? I mean, what led you to that choice? I think it was kind of uh, intuition or maybe... Uh, maybe uh, um, but not the normal in Bordeaux, certainly not even today, let alone at that time. At that time, yeah. To, yeah, the Grand Cru, yes were all tilled, but the Cru Bourgeois were not, you know, it was a question of cost. What made me do that? I think it's a question of ambition. Ambition of when we buy an estate with Rodreur, we, we first buy a great terroir and then we want to introduce our knowledge in the terroir to really lift the quality up. And my ambition was to, a long-term ambition was to lift quickly the quality up and, uh, and unfortunately, when you have a long-term ambition, the short-term can be not that good a decision, but you miss one vintage. And after 97, you, you have the first return from your work and 98 and 99 and 2000. So I think it's, you have to know in our job to know how to forget the, the short-term 
especially in my job today, because, you know, as you know, for crystal, for example, the vines which make crystal, they are minimum 25 years old, average 40 years old, which means that I have been with the house for 27 years. That means that I'm just starting to work with the fruit I planted 25 years ago or 27 years ago. So more everything I'm planting today is for my successor. I won't make the wine. And most of the wine I make today, it's because of my predecessor or because thanks to my predecessor. Like that, I can, I, if it's not good, I, I can say it's not my fault. And if it's great, I say, ah, oh, you see, I, I'm very good at it. But at the same time, I mean, I think what you're saying also implies that you get a fair amount of trust from your current boss, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, it's really um, a chance I got. Uh, I think um, a mutual respect. It shows me. It shows me. He came. He came to the university and said to my professor at Montpellier, he said, "I want your best student. Give me your best student. Your best." And uh, that guy wasn't available, and so then they. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm kidding around. I'm exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the guy was sick, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so uh, my pro- my professor Denis Boubals, a monster in the in the wine world, you know, a great man, fantastic man, said, "Oh, you're lucky, Jean Claude, because uh, my best student is from Champagne, but you have a double luck because not only is the best." in winemaking, but he's also the best in viticulture because I graduated first on the two topics. So he said, you're lucky, he's from Champagne. And he, so, so I think right away with Jean-Claude, he chose me and Frédéric, his son, continued that. I think it's a question of really, we share the same values. We have the same vision. And it's more than that. They let me show the way. You know, when I reintroduced biodynamics or even tilling, in, at Chateau de Pez, they followed me. You know, they said, go for it. Uh, when I re- reintroduced biodynamic in Champagne in 2000, uh, Jean-Claude said, I, I told Jean-Claude, I want to do that. What do you think? And Jean-Claude said, he had a long thinking and he said, listen, you are very courageous. I would not have this courage or this uh, strength to do it, but do it. So for him, it was a, uh, something very, very good. He believed in, in the idea, but uh, what an investment, you know, a personal investment and a team investment. So it was, he knew that the mountain will be hard to climb, but he really, he let me go. And uh, today I think he's, he shares my views and his son shares completely my view as well. I'm not saying that I have all the views eh? because uh, they have son and father, great views as well. So it's a really uh, a win-win a win-win uh, job. And I always say, we always think, and Frédéric would be here, he would say the same, we think the great wines of the world have always been made by two persons. And why do you think that is? The owner and the technicians, or the analogist, or the viticulturist, you call it. So you're saying I should have two mics. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you have one. You have two. <laughs> well, I need mean, three, apparently. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I think it's, it's important. This is this double... Double, uh, we call we call that in the family the the eagle with a double head. You know, it's a double head eagle. If you want to see three sixty degrees, you need the, this vision, and uh, so that's uh, the way the family thinks. That's the way I think. So it's a very it's a win win. John Claude had been associated with a lot of revitalization and growth with that company, right? As a yeah. brand, he really oh, yeah. sort of oh yeah turbocharged it. Yes, completely. 
And then at the end, he hires you. Like kind of towards the end of his run, mm. he knows he's going to hand it off mm. and he hires you, right? Yeah, uh, it's, it's not at the end. It's at the mid- I was his right-hand man uh, since 89 because I was a man who was, you're exactly right. I think he started California. He, started, he had Australia. He had Portugal. He had Bordeaux. And um, I was his trust man. You know, I was a man that his right-hand man traveling the world for him, you know, for his vision. So I think he had to trust me and I had to be completely committed to the vision. And uh, so, so that, that worked very well. So we were 10 years together. He tested me, I guess, or he saw my resilience on my loyalty. I think you need to, be, to work with a family, a wine family like that, a seven-generation wine family. You need resilience. Humility, not to be uh, the ego. My ego cannot be bigger than Jean-Claude's or Frédéric. My ego has to be smaller. And you have to be committed and loyal. If you have those four values, you're the man. Uh, and I think it's really uh, who I am. Uh, I think I'm this kind of humility, this kind of resilience, and this, guy, this, this search for perfection is who I am. So that, that's fine. And after 10 years, he saw that I was the right man. So when I think it's maybe why, he, why it was so easy for him to li- give the comments to his son, because he knew that I would continue, I would be with him. And when did you realize that about yourself? I mean, I understand what you're saying, and I agree with you, mm-hmm. but it's not everyone who can articulate that about themselves. Mm-hmm. So when did you realize that you had those qualities? I mean, did you know from the beginning or did it take a while? Were there moments that you said, okay, maybe I can do this? You have a strong chance when you're in a family company. That's a difference is that there is no, no challenge. Only the owner is legitimate. You, you cannot fight with the owner. He's the owner. It's his money. It's his story. You are just here to participate to uh, the next level, or to bring the company to another level, but it's not your company. I think it's very important to have an the owner and uh, a technician. The, the owner is the money on the long-term view. The technician uh, must be uh, here to express his talent on the, on the art. And uh, so after, it's a choice. Huh? If, you, if you want to be uh, the big shot or the big, uh, the big man, uh, you, I could have been somewhere else. I had some proposition at the beginning to go somewhere else. But I think yeah, there's so much to do in this beautiful estate of Rodreur and uh, the the international experience as well. It's unique. There's no other chef de cave that can travel. I travel every month in Domenot, in Portugal. I go twice a year in California. I can see, I do five vintage in a year, five vintages with the other estates. So I learn five times quicker. Did you have that kind of relationship with your father that you had with the Rosar family? Yeah, uh, my, my, my father, I think I'm very lucky because my fa- I had this my parents have been very trustful in me. You know, they always trusted me. And uh, I think they, and they let me, uh, I, my parents did with me maybe what I didn't do with my children, which is they really uh, had full faith in me. <laughs> if, if, you, if the children are listening, <laughs> yes. sorry about that. <laughs> but my children, you know, maybe I was a little bit more, with my children, a little bit more, um, not overlooking, but a little bit more um, uh, loving with them, you know, I think it's, uh, I'm maybe too much present with my children, you know. I think sometimes parents must let 
the children grow. Get out of the nest you know? a little bit. It's the same with the wine. So, so yeah, my parents were like that. You know, they, they really trust me, trusted me, and they let me do what I wanted. You know, when I was 14 or 16 doing crazy things, they were happy with that. You know? The chef de cave duties come in 99. What are your, what's your first thought? Fortunately or unfortunately, when uh, I, I had managed all those estates in California, in Australia, and in Bordeaux, and when Jean-Claude offered me the chef de cave position, maybe he didn't expect my reaction, but I say, I told Jean-Claude, yes, I, I accept one condition. I want also the vineyard. Because the tradition in Champagne is that chef de cave is making the wine, the blends, is the man who, who speaks about the wine, But the, the, the viticulturist or the chef de culture the, is growing grapes in the vineyards and they don't speak too much. You know, it's kind of a strange situation where one has finished his job at harvest and the other one starts his job after harvest. I never understood this stop. You know, this is like uh, the 31st of December. I never understood <laughs> It's never, it's never ending. So everybody is, there's a big fiesta and people are happy. This is the end of the year, but the day after it's a new year, but it doesn't change, you know? So it's the same with the, the work in the vineyards. It never stops. It's, an, it's a continuum. It's a continuum. Uh, so you could have two, two positions. First position is a teamwork. You give me the ball and I transform it. That would be a way to do it. Or there is maybe a new way that I, Created because that's the first time ever a chef de cave would be in charge of the vineyard in Champagne, which is, I want the vineyards in my department because I want to really control every of my lieu every of my parcel, to craft the wine in the vineyards, not in the cellar. Do it in the vineyards. So I told Jean-Claude, give me, uh, I agree, but give me the vineyards. And uh, it didn't take long I think five minutes for him to say, okay, do it. That's a great idea. And uh, so I took the vineyard at this time. And then the revolution in the vineyard started, you know, in Champagne. We had to reintroduce tilling immediately, like I did in Saint-Estef, uh, with more slowly, maybe not as strongly as in Saint-Estef, because I had the 96 vintage in mind. You know, reintroduced tilling, started the biodynamic trials, organic, biodynamic, and things like that. And uh, restarted massal selection, which has been uh, stopped for 20 years. So jumped on the old parcels before clonal selection, pre-60 plantation to the reservoir, to go to the collection, to pick uh, individuals that would be interesting, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Do the same with Woodstock. So, so I really relaunched everything in the vineyards to to bring the vineyard to the next step of maybe expression. Let's call it that way. And, and I was lucky enough to hire a young, a young enologist at the time, which I did the same that Jean-Claude did with me. You know, I went to university and I saw this guy. We had a long talk together. And now and since 2001 or 2002, he's my right-hand man in the vineyards. Very uh, natural, very loving the vineyards. And he carries all the vision in the vineyards every day. So one more time, a teamwork that is important. So when you have a team that that's, is as large as yours, what are the keys to doing those kind of changes in the vineyard? I mean, how do you approach that? The keys is nothing is possible without people being empowered 
so you need to spend enough time to explain. You need to spend enough time to visit estates. In Burgundy, I went to see Dominique Lafont. I went to see Anne-Claude Lefebvre. I went to see Jean-Michel Dice. I went to see Jean-Pierre Jean Fleury in Courteron, you know, who had started the first estate of biodynamic estate in, in Champagne is Jean-Pierre Fleury. So uh, we went to see those, those people and we found, and thanks to Dominique Lafont, we found a, a fantastic man, called, uh, his name is Pierre Masson, who is uh, this kind of biodynamic person which is a believer but has a lot of, he simplifies things. It's not, uh, you know, uh, because in biodynamics, sometimes you, it's too complicated or you're lost or there is one recipe and things like that. So I think it's not good to, to, bring, to replace a recipe by another recipe. Never. So the, what I was looking for is more opening windows, think outside the box, create some new, new windows, reconnect people to the land, reconnect. You know, today we are in the digital world. We talk about a lot about interconnection, but I think the best way to reconnect is to stop using chemicals, stop, stop using technology sometimes, and you reconnect to the place. And uh, so we were lucky to to find those people. And, and I, all my team was uh, saw that, and I think everybody realized at one point, more or less, huh, because uh, I'm not telling you that everybody uh, is convinced. But everybody understood that it was worth doing it. It was worth trying to do it, and uh, it was more uh, interesting for them. It was a more. It, it makes sense to their job by being involved at this point very, very closely. So we did that, and some are not yet completely convinced. The only way I can convince them when I do biodynamic is that: Do you prefer to have antibiotics all around you, or do you prefer to have? Uh, copper or sulfur for your own health and the answer is always the same I prefer copper and sulfur but no antibiotics so maybe they don't believe in it but it's good for them so if it's good for them it must be good for, for the vine as well so train the people convince, convince, convince convince and convince again and, uh, and don't, um, don't stop because uh, even if everybody's laughing around because uh, we had to face this in Champagne 15 years ago, even not only biodynamic, when we started tilling, all the growers around saying, you're crazy, you're destroying all the progress we have done since all of that. And uh, it, you need a, a, good, a good sense of resilience to face that. And me, but it's easy for me, but my team, you know, my, my team, because uh, everybody was laughing 15 years ago. Now nobody loves huh? Well, the wines are quite good, I think. Yeah, and, and everybody's doing the same, so that's fine. It, it shows that it was not wrong. What are examples at Rotor where winemaking decisions are made in the vineyard, where the wine style is actually determined in the vineyard? It, it starts in the process of selection of soil. We, I try to make subsoil wine, not soil wine, subsoil wine. So the first thing I did is a complete study of the soil, studying with a, a geologist from Bordeaux University, and uh, doing holes to see where the bedrock was, where, what was the chalk content, the clay content, the sand content, the structure, the compaction, all of that. So I did full study on the vineyards, on the 410 parcels. So huge work. And then at the same time, I looked at my old books going back to 1845, and I studied where 
What blocks, what parcels? Why 1845? It's because that year Roderer bought the first parcel. So uh, what, I, know, I have all the blends, so I know exactly in which blend each parcel went every year since 1845. So I, I did a study of what was doing very consistently Cristal, what was doing very consistently vintage, what was doing very consistently rosé and things like that. And what I found was unbelievable is that every plot which were making Cristal were the chalky, chalkiest block. Where the subsoil was not deep, one meter, bedrock was one meter deep. And there was this kind of, you, you could see the roots going down and sitting on the bedrock and starting to dig slowly in the, in the chalk. So uh, there was a strong correlation, 99% in between chalk content and crystal blend. So I redefined all the estate. I said, these 45 plots, that's crystal plots, that's chalky plots. That is vintage plot. That is blanc de blanc plot. This is, uh, and now every domain is completely run to make one wine. And every viti the viticulture is not the same. The, we do biodynamic in some, we don't do biodynamic in others. Plowing is not the same. Tilling is different. Uh, leaf plucking is different. Pruning is different. So we have adapted to, we have different targets of number of birds according to the wine we want to make. For crystal, we'll make a lower number of buds because we want to control the yields. For rosé, even less. And for vintage, we are less, much more generous because we want more focus on acidity and freshness. So all, all is really uh, adapted to the wine. And finally, every year we do picking decision is made in the fields. You know, we look at the grapes, we look at the berry, we look at the color, we test them, test the skin, test the seeds. Test the pulp, test the freshness, uh, all of that is all done by test. And I, of course, I have, have analysis of everything to just to make sure that I'm in the right direction. And so by the time the grapes come into the winery, a lot of your work for the style of the wine is kind of already done. Yeah, it's, it's 100% done, almost. Uh, I know exactly that I do parcel of vinification, so every single plot is in one tank. I have 410 blocks, 450 tanks, so everything is separated. I know that to the balance I've seen that this one is perfectly balanced, the fruit is fine, so it will go mostly in stainless steel and it will be preserved as it is. My, my winemaking becomes preservation of balance. In some other places, I know that it was a little bit greener, a little bit not as balanced, so my winemaking would be a little bit more powerful. Soft would be oak fermentation, but I can be stronger by doing malolactic fermentation if need be. So every, everything is already set uh, before harvest. I know exactly where I want to, to go. It doesn't mean that I'm right, <laughs> but it, it means that, um, it means, uh, that uh, I have an ID. An ID. For example, 15 years, 2015, I prepared everything thinking that it would be a very warm, rich, fruity year. And uh, after a week, I realized that it was not the case. Testing the grapes, looking at the wine, testing the wines, I realized that it was not like that at all. It was, it was very fresh. It was uh, maybe more classic. And that the terroir were very transparent this year. I was expecting the sun to take over the terroir. And in fact, the terroir was speaking 
loudly, you know. So then I changed my winemaking, you know. I, I didn't want to use too much oak. And um, now I'm convinced that the wine is really able to cope with oak. So I have changed my, my winemaking. So, so you have ideas, directions, but you can change your directions. So it's like doing judo, you know. You play with nature strengths. I'm not imposing, uh, I'm not saying you must do that. I'm just doing, try, observing who, what is the strength and just playing with the strength to get what I think we should have. But really, really, um, really letting every terroir express itself and speak. That's, that's the key. Seems like those different wines, the intention is different. The Brew Premier, the Vintage, the Rosé. The crystal, the crystal rosé. It seems like there's a different intention yeah. based on yeah. what you're picking to do yeah. and yeah. where you're picking it from and the kind of farming. Yeah. Mm. There is the same intention, which is to let the terroir speak because crystal will be pure chalk, crystal rosé, of course, as well. Vintage will be chalk and clay. So the intention is a terroir. And then the, the winemaking is à la carte. Uh, I have tools, you know. I think it's like a library. You have many tools, uh, when you start harvest, there must be all your drawer must be pushed, you know, and then you open your drawer when you need them, and not take all your power or your 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 knowledge and things like that because then you take over. You will have plenty of time to take control of the situation at blending time. Blending time, that's the time where you take control, you, and you take simply control by using one person of this plus two person of that plus three person of this plus 5% of that, and that's a control. That, there you have control. But nine months of the year, you are in single vineyard, terroir expression, not in a blending, not in a style construction. You are really in, uh, in letting the terroir speak. So it actually makes more sense to have each of those ingredients be distinctly different because later you're going to blend and you don't want them to be all the same. Otherwise, that makes your job as a blender much more difficult. Exactly. The more, the more colors, the more pixels. Look at a picture, a photo. The more pixels I have, you have, the more definition, the more high definition you get in the end. So look at every parcel as a pixel. And uh, the more different they are, the better it is. It's almost like a cubist work, you know. Each plot is like a little element, a geometrical form, volume, a color that you have to know very well it has to be consistent from testing to testing and then it's up to you to build to create a wall that is better than every form you know so you are, that's where human being and knowledge is important so when you look at the landscape of the champagne region you have about 240 hectare vineyards to draw from what do you see there what are the commune differences i mean besides the fact that some are more chalky and some are more clay what do you see that I can relate to a place name that draws differently as an ingredient than it would be if it were from a different place? Yeah, you, you, that's, that's, that's the key. The key. Uh, we talk a lot about climat in Burgundy, and we believe that Champagne has, I think Champagne has even more climat than Burgundy. Because um, if you're south-facing, if you're at the altitude, uphill or downhill or mid-slope, if you are facing south, facing east, facing north, if you are on chalk or on clay or on sand, if you are old vines or young vines, if you are Pinot Noir or Chardonnay, you get different expressions. And uh, so we know roughly, we know that Aïe, for example, the terroir of Goudor, of Bonnot in Aïe, 
and all those mid-slope terroirs that are known very well by all Champagne people, they bring this soft, round, very, very elegant, very uh, onctuous style of wine uh, if they are picked ripe. That's one of my important beliefs. You have to pick ripe. Never pick underripe fruit or never overripe, but ripe. Uh, and uh, so IE will give you that. You know that Mareuil would be a little bit more green, green, which is not veggie, but it gives some more sap, sappiness, some more, uh, some more, uh, maybe some more length as well, but uh, it's a little bit more rustic. Maybe this is why it's not a Grand Cru, it's a Premier Cru. Even though they're nearby. I mean, yeah. they're adjoining. Yeah, they're very close, but uh, I think it's a question of soil again, a source, wa springs, water, and things like that. Exposure. You know that uh, Verzenay will give you a very uh, intense, powerful, yet round and elegant wine. I think maybe Verzenay is the most self-sufficient cru with Avis Côte des Blancs. They are the two most self-sufficient cru because they are all, everything can come together. And you use that for the vintage? Vintage, yeah, and crystal also. On chalk, vintage on chalk and clay. You know that Verzi is a slight variation of Verzenay. It has not as much power. It is more floral, more um, acidified fruit, you know, more yuzu, yuzu style uh, of a fruit, which is very interesting to bring some lifts, you know, in the aromatics. You, you know that Aviz is round and ripe and gives some roundness. I, I usually call it the Morache of Champagne. And you know that Menil will be Menil, sur Roger will be longer. But that's generally speaking. Uh, after, if you are mid-slope, you don't have the same result if you are downhill or uphill. So that's where the classification in Champagne, Grand Cru, Premier Cru is not very good. Because uh, I, I much prefer the Burgundian classification. Because uh, you can be Verzenay, but if you are downhill, that's not very elegant. It's ripe and not very elegant. If you're uphill, it's what we call the cold soils. It's very cool. It's very green. It's not very interesting. What is interesting is mid-slope, which is uh, the top lieu dit. That's why I never speak at Roder. I never speak in cru. I, I never say Verzenay, Verzi, Aïe. I speak in lieu dit. Only the lieu dit is true to the terroir, so it can be bonote, Jean-Romé, Pisse-Renard, Basse-Couture. They are the important things. And what about the Côte de Blanc? Côte de Blanc is chalk, definitely chalk. And uh, the heart of Côte de Blanc, which is Cramant, Avis, is really, really interesting. So it's planted in Chardonnay, of course. One important thing, we call it Côte de Blanc, but let's, let's not forget that the real name, historic real name, is Côte Blanche. Not because there was white grapes on it, but because it was pure chalk. So this is, I, I prefer to call it Côte Blanche because uh, you can have some Pinot Noir on Côte Blanche. It's a choice, especially in Vertu. You will find some Pinot Noir, but most of it is Chardonnay. Then you come back to the grape variety, which is also different. Huh? Uh, we have two different animals. I won't speak about Meunier. I, we have some Meunier. I like Meunier. Meunier is important for Brut Premier, but I don't grow it. I just use it as a chef de cave. So I'm not very well positioned. I can give you an idea of the village, what I think is a village, but I don't grow it. So I, it will be a 
not as precise as the growers. Because the brew premier is the wine where you buy in some grapes. Exactly, exactly. And But uh, what I know very well is Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. I grow them and I see them uh, as two different animals. Pinot Noir for me is uh, what I call marathonian. It goes very slowly, very long ripeness, needs sun. Uh, if it's too wet, it struggles. And uh, it tends to be oxidative. So you have to be careful with Pinot Noir not to pick it overripe because you could switch to oxidative taste. So it's a, it's a Marathonian, but you have to be very careful on, on, on the ripeness. Chardonnay is exactly the opposite. It's reductive. It's a, a sprinter. It goes very fast, but it's good because you have to let it go. In Champagne, if you pick Chardonnay underripe, it's very floral and uh, almost Sauvignon-y. Theol, you know, very uh, pamplemousse or pomelos. And I, it's not my, I don't like it that way, you know. I, what I like is Chardonnay, which is rich, round, not honey-like, but which has some a kind of chalky texture, a, a grain, we say. And you need to push the ripeness. So I pick usually my Chardonnay very ripe, uh, which is unusual in Côte des Blancs, unusual for most of the people, not unusual for Anselm Celos. He picks ripe as well. So we have a few, a few believers in ripe Chardonnay. Uh, and I think if you want Chardonnay to lose its varietal character, you need to push the ripeness. While Pinot Noir doesn't have a varietal character, Pinot Noir is transparency. It's, uh, yeah, you, you don't need to fight against Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir is, uh, is a king. Does that riper Chardonnay imply a different response to sulfur? Yeah. If, it were, if it were less ripe... Would the sulfur stick out more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. So I, uh, not only I pick riper, but also I don't sulfur as a juice. I press it with a pneumatic press to be a bit more dynamic because as with Chardonnay, you need to push the extraction a little bit because the skin gets the aromatics. So if you are not Pinot Noir, but in Chardonnay, so you need to push a little bit the extraction. And I do not sulfur Chardonnay at pressing I will do it later after fermentation. Because you want the information from the skins. Exactly. And if you sulfur it, you're going to lose exactly. that information on the skins. Exactly. And the sulfur will take over. Then you will get a sulfur style, aromatic style that I don't want on Chardonnay. I don't want this. So it's another example of how it's really a chain of decisions. Yeah. You start mm. at the beginning of the chain to, so exactly. that you can make the decision yeah. you want at the end. Yeah. And also the biodynamic farming has a strong effect, you know. I have, I have learned that when you have a biodynamic fruit, it's more reductive than a non-biodynamic fruit. Uh, and you have to aerate it a little bit more. It's even more true. All what I'm saying about sulfur on Chardonnay, it's even more true on biodynamic fruit. Now, it's, why is that? Why is it more reductive fruit? I don't know. Okay. It's facts. Yeah. It's facts. No, I hear from many Yeah. yeah. If, uh, if I do ferment a biodynamic Chardonnay like a non-biodynamic Chardonnay, it's reductive. It's redu it almost... Reduced. So I need to aerate it. I need to. Be. Why? I believe. Uh, <laughs> why? I don't know. Uh, I, it's not a question of sulfur spray because I use the same amount on my trials of organic and I don't have the same problem. You use the same amount of sprays? Yeah. Yeah. Because sometimes I, people say the biodynamic fruit's more reductive because they spray it more. It is. Yeah. But I don't think it's sulfur. I believe. Uh, and I did a study with uh, Enology this year which shows that it's not the case again. So it's not a question of sulfur spray. It's maybe a question of 
road system, less mineralization, less uh, more packed. I, what I can see is the berry are smaller, so maybe more concentration of flavors. It's I call it reductive, but it's another kind of reduction of reductive character, which is a reduction as a cook. You know, when you want to reduce. Like a soup. A sauce, a soup, you need to let it boil and evaporate. This is this kind of, you know, you concentrate so much the flavors that they are packed and you need to let them braise a little bit more. So I have relearned winemaking after relearning viticulture. Uh, and that's, that's very interesting. For my team of enologists, it's fascinating because uh, we are opening some new windows. Who do you talk to about that? I mean, when you see th- results like that, who do you talk to? Geisenheim University in Germany, because uh, not why not Bordeaux or Champagne? Because Geisenheim is open to biodynamic farming. They have done a lot of trials, and this is a biodynamic country, so they are a little bit more open. But also, I can get some good vibes from Un- Bordeaux University now. They accept to work on it, and uh, so I need to to go on this research level. PhD level and things like that to try to understand what's going on, uh, knowing that maybe I will never get the answer. But what I see, what I test, I test it. Are you looking at the pruning as a response to vine diseases like Utipa? Yeah, not only that. I think uh, we have um, forgot the vines is an old lady. Pinot Noir has been domesticated by us in the Middle Age. So that's a thousand years. A thousand years that we are reproducing without any fecundation, huh? re- just re- replanting the same material, same genetic material, which is, in a way, the best way to become weak and not uh, because you have climate change, you have different conditions. So, so on these old ladies, you need to have a really soft pruning, not a strong, hard pruning. You need to be very soft and uh, you need to keep as much sap as you can available for each bud, each per position, each bud position. So you really need to keep the energy. I call it the energy, not the vigor. Let's not confuse with vigor, which is vigor is too much. But energy, I think the great terroir have energy. Energy in the growth. To make a great wine, you need a vine which is in good health. Because the better it is in health, the better it is able to face disease, Downy mildew, powdery mildew, or Esca, or Utipa, all those kind of things. So, second idea, get more homogeneity in my bud positions to get a better, uh, quite uneven ripeness. Because sometimes you find, especially on the old vines, that one bunch is ripe and the other one is unripe. So, you pick them twice, if you can, or you mix them and then you have a ripe and an unripe, so balance of not interest. I would rather like to have something very even. And last but not least, I think it's uh, one more time we come back to man. And I think uh, with the old appellation system, we are teached the how of things, how you must prune. We are not teached anymore why we prune like that. So by doing the work we have done, it was a good way to reserve, come back to the why, the why we prune that way why we have this type of pruning, not how we do it, but why we do it. And when you look at the why instead of the how, you see different things. But looking for more uniform ripeness also sounds like a man issue because it sounds like a a labor issue. It Mm. sounds like ripeness is a labor issue. 
Yeah. Sometimes you get ripeness because nature gives it to you, but it's very rare. So you, to look for the ripeness, you need to work hard. It's a labor issue. Yeah. It's uh, pruning. It's a, uh, it's a number of buds. It's yielding. It's all of that. You know, it's, it's a balance. And I don't have the same target with Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Chardonnay will be a little bit uploaded. You know, it can manage quite well with, let's say, 15 bunches, 14 bunches per vine. While Pinot Noir, if you go over 12 bunches, it's your, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It, you never reach rightness. So, yeah, it's labor, it's labor. But vineyard is a labor story. You have to go in the vineyard. If you believe that you can have a vineyard without uh, being in your vineyard every day, without uh, doing every kind of work uh, and just controlling by computer, it's wrong. Or you will never have a, a drone or an automatic thing that we do. Uh, yes, you will. We, we will invent that. But um, every time you go in your vineyard, you see new things. And this is what maybe is the truth about biodynamics sometimes. Maybe it is just being every day in your vineyards, seeing things that you were not seeing if you are just relying on chemicals. And about the Pinot Noir, I feel like you farm it differently in different parcels, very yeah. much on purpose. Yeah, yeah. It depends on the wine you want to make. I talked about Chardonnay saying it's a pulp grape. Easy to understand. If you squeeze a berry of Chardonnay when it's ripe, you squeeze it, what you will get out, it will open, and what will get out is a pulp. You will never have a drop of juice of Chardonnay. You have the pulp coming out. If you do the same with Pinot Noir, when it breaks, you, ex you immediately have the juice. So you have a juice, a skin. I call it a skin. Ch Pinot Noir is a skin grape. Chardonnay is a pulp grape. The flavor is in the pulp in Chardonnay. The flavor is in the skin for Pinot Noir. So depending on the wine you want to make, uh, if you make a rosé, you want a lot a lot of skin ripeness. So you will do leaf plucking, you do leaf removal, you will do uh, yeast, uh, yeah, green harvesting, you will do all of that to get as much sun as you can on the skin for the skin to ripen and for the tannins to be as sweet as possible. If you make a vintage white, then you, need, you, you don't want any, any flavor from the skin in the wine. You want just the sap from the soil and don't get any aroma from the skin. So you don't want to any sun burn on your... So you keep leaves on the benches to get more minerality. You look for more minerality, more floral, uh, but no fruit character. So that's two different viticultures. If you make a rosé, it's a red wine-making viticulture. So you skin, sun, low yielding. If you make vintage white, no sun... That's why the pruning brings, uh, in Champagne, the pruning, especially in Chardonnay, the Chablis pruning is designed to bring the bunches into the canopy. While in Burgundy, it, the Roya is made for the bunches to be at the sun. So we are completely different. So our ancient tradition knew that we, were, we have to go away from the sun when you make a white Champagne because you don't want the sun. You want freshness. You want uh, precision. If you make a rosé, you go for the sun. So you really have to adapt your vineyard work. Uh, it's one part of it. The pruning is adapted. The debudding is adapted. The uh, yeah, many, many steps, many steps. So in 2006, you did the Brutna tour, and I feel like it was almost a challenge for yourself 
conceptually to see if you could pull it off because some of it is different than how you normally make the wines in terms of you're not blending, you're doing a co-ferment. And so you almost had to take some of the philosophies you've already talked about and take them one step further yeah. and blend the wine mm. from grapes. Mm. So how did that happen and what was the impetus for that and what did you find out? Mm. It's first, we were working on biodynamic, we were working on all this, trying to find some new new way, uh, innovating in, in the vineyards, innovating in the fruit, innovating, thinking. And at the same time, we had these long, long talks with uh, Philippe Stark, you know, the French designer, and he loves champagne. And then he came to a talk on modern wine. What would be a modern wine? And what did we say? We say a modern wine has to be more immediate, more essential, more minimalist, maybe less sophisticated. So we, that was the idea we had. And then we looked at our practices and we say, okay, let's change our mind and let's uh, come back to the essential of things. What is knowledge? Uh, and what, what would be the new thing? First, before Philippe came, we were already working on climate change. That's what was a plan we launched back in 2000. plan was to understand what would be the climate change effect. What would be a global warming effect on grapes? What would be the next step? So all of that brought together, we decided to be true to one slope, one area, instead of going and picking Leaving, leaving uh, maybe less human interventions, um, even the blending. We forgot blending. We knew that it was not a Rodreur wine we were making. It was to create something different. So we forgot everything we knew. And we really simplified everything. Simplified. Biodynamic, picking Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Meunier, same day, fruit day, co-pressing, co-fermenting, little racking, half oak, half stainless steel, picked very ripe, only in a warm year, so not in a cool year, because that's the climate change idea. Warm, drier, see what it does, and then let it do the bottling at low pressure to really let the bubble behind the wine, and in the end, no dosage and things like that. So I think this, this is the, the idea we got is let's do it another way. That's not at all what we have been told to do or what we have learned, but let's maybe put together all our ideas today and see what the wine would be. What is very interesting in that uh, concept is that we didn't have, usually when you make a wine as a winemaker, you have a target. I want to make this type of wine. It has to be fresh like that, smell this and smell that, and you direct all your practices to reach that uh, what we've done is the exact opposite. We say we don't want to know what will be the end product. We have no specific target. But what we know is that we have to do minimal, less is more everywhere. So we did the most elegant gesture at all step, and uh, and the end result was Brut Nature. So I don't see it as a Rodreur wine. It is, but I don't see it as a Rodreur wine. I see it as our lab or let's call it bande annonce, you know, like a, a pitch for the future. It's a, it's a pitch. That's a wine that, uh, that is a pitch. We, I would have never done it without Philip Stark, uh, and it opens completely new windows. So it's really a pitch of what could be maybe champagne in 40 years or in 50 years if global warming goes up. And it's not even a brute nature. It's not even uh, because the zero dosage doesn't mean anything for me. You know, I, I didn't intend to make a zero dosage. 
in the end, it didn't need dosage. And everybody who tests it is always surprised. You know, everybody says, uh, expect a brute nature with very high acidity, uh, very lean. And, uh, and every, most of the people are very surprised by the wine roundness, the depth. And often they say, but it's not true. It's, uh, it's not zero dosage it's because I, know, I feel some sweetness in it. I feel some, some roundness. So it's quite surprising. It's, it's, it's a brute nature that is not a zero dosage. It is a zero dosage, but it doesn't taste like it. So did you find that some of that experience is going to play back into some of the other wines that you make? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Uh, we, uh, the biodynamic, uh, the pressure, ID. Uh, Using lower pressure. Yeah. I, I have decreased the pressure. Which uh, makes it seem more venous. More, more venous, more, um, more venous and more um, onctuous. I prefer the onctuous, you know, the more creamy, the creamier uh, texture. We have uh, also um, reduced the dosage on all the range. You know, uh, I'm preparing the Crystal 09 for in a year time, uh, and the dosage will be the lowest ever on Crystal. You know, it will be 8.5 or 8.5 grams, I think, which is the lowest ever. Non malolactic, eh? I mean, be careful because dosage people always talk about the level of sugar, but it doesn't mean anything. Because uh, you don't put the wine through mallow. Exactly. So the acidity no is different. Yeah. Than yeah. So uh, nine grams, I always say nine grams without malolactic. If you want the same, the, to know the figure of dosage with malolactic, you divide by half. So nine grams without malolactic is like uh, 4.5 grams uh, with malolactic. What should I understand about Cristal? I mean, I feel like it's one of those wines where the brand recognition or the branding has almost overshadowed the wine. And that must be nice sometimes, and it must be frustrating other times. I don't know. Mm. But if I were to talk about the wine... Cristal and Cristal Rosé. What should I know about those wines? You should know that it's, uh, it takes, to make one bottle of Cristal, it takes about 55 years. 55 years because I use the average age of the vineyard is 40, 45 years, plus seven years on lease. Plus, uh, so it takes, a, a single bottle of Cristal is, is a 55 years of, uh, of work. So it's a lot of work, a lot of time. Time is very important for crystal, I see. It's. I always say it's almost time in the bottle, crystal. Uh, what you should know is all those white soils, uh, because it's chalk, pure chalk, pinot noir and chardonnay on chalk. That maybe the pinot noir on chalk is the secret of crystal, because usually champenois put chardonnay on chalk because it's it makes more sense for the style of chardonnay. But Roderer, we we put pinot noir on, on chalk, which makes a pinot noir with a taste of chardonnay which is a very amazing or a test of choke because that's maybe in the end that's the choke you test. And um, what you should know, we don't do, we don't do malolactic fermentation. We keep it, we pick very ripe. We don't chaptalize because it's very ripe. We do partial oak fermentation, yes. What you should know also is uh, about 50% of the estate, 45 plots, is ore stilled. 50% is tractor tilled. It's not for the marketing or for the photo. It's just because when it's old, in the case of Crystal, after 50, 55 years old, you have such heterogeneity in the vineyards and in the pruning that a tractor, if you go tilling with a tractor, you will really scrap some of the vines. So you need to be uh, haute precision, high, very precise uh, tilling, and you can only do it by horse. 
So all the old vines are whole still. And the 30, 25, 30, 40 year old vines are tractor tilled. Uh, what you should know is that it's 45, 50 plots uh, of an average of two hectares each plot. So it's like 50 Romane Conti size plots. And uh, what, very important, the selection at testing when we do the blending is one, which is it has to be chalky. So Chardonnay or Pinot Noir, it has to be chalky. If it's a beautiful fruity Pinot Noir style, it doesn't go into crystal. If it's a beautiful Chardonnay varietal, it doesn't go into crystal. It only goes into crystal when it's pure chalk feeling. When you can taste that. When you can taste it. And then it goes into the blend. And then we look at the ratio of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. So there is no formula. Sometimes it can be 60% Chardonnay, 40% Pinot Noir in the end. Sometimes it can be 75% Pinot Noir and 25% Chardonnay. So from one crystal to another, you can have a real jump in grape variety, big difference, but it's always coming from the same plots, not always the same. Uh, we don't take all the same plots, but and we select just to this idea of bringing into the crystal bottle a pure, precise, very elegant chalk taste. When you grow Pinot Noir on chalk, what happens? It's very hard, very hard because uh, Pinot Noir likes a little bit of clay because it's richer, and uh, so it grows quicker on clay and uh, it, you have a higher yield. This is why on Côte des Blancs, you have Chardonnay, because if you go back at the 1800 in Côte Blanche, 1800, we didn't know Chardonnay, because it was only domesticated in 1880, Chardonnay. So the, mostly it was Pinot Noir, but the Côte Blanche was not planted with Pinot Noir, because on, it was on pure chalk. Pinot Noir was really struggling, and uh, so it takes a long time to grow Pinot Noir on chalk, and it needs low yields. You need to crop 30% lower yields on chalks, and you can do it on chalk and clay to get ripeness. So it's, uh, it's difficult. So uh, a vigneron will not do it because it's, uh, it, it takes time. He doesn't have the yields he wants and things like that. But when you are a winemaker and you look for this extreme elegance, you can do it for crystal. So I'm, uh, I'm not, I didn't come and say this is Pinot Noir and things like that. No, no, it was already done. But uh, I think what I found is that the common denominator, the a start of explanation, not this is good, it goes into crystal, but just a start of explanation. And uh, this is very modest. Huh? <laughs> it's uh, my predecessor and their predecessor knew that those blocks were doing very well and were crystal designed, you know. John Baptiste Lecchion realized in an early age that nature is bigger than all of us, but he's, through time, done his best to shorten the distance. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you very much, Levy. Jean Baptiste Lecchion of Champagne, Louis Roder. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, 
alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothat, P-O-D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. PeterLeemChampagneGuide.net was a key resource for me when I was preparing for this interview. If you're interested in champagne, I highly recommend that you check it out. It is the best resource I know about champagne in English today. Again, champagneguide.net from Peter Leem.